Okay, um, could I have everyone's attention, please? I want to apologize, first of all, for my voice. I've got whatever bug is going around the LSE. We all get it at some point. Um, but since I'm not going to be doing most of the speaking, I think it's okay for chairing. My name is Dr. Schultz. I'm in the International History Department at the LSE. Um, I want to just briefly sort of um, outline where we're going today. We have an hour and a half. Um, Professor Durgis will be speaking for about 45 minutes, and then after that we'll still have another 45 minutes for comments and question and answer. Um, for those of you who are tweeting, I'm supposed to say this, um, please use hashtag LSE War on Terror. Um, and now let us move to Professor Jurgis himself. Fawaz Jurgis is Professor in Middle Eastern Politics and International Relations at the LSE. He is also the Director of the Middle East Center at the LSE. He has taught at Oxford, Harvard, and Columbia, and was a research scholar at Princeton, and is a chairholder at Sarah Lawrence College, New York. His special interests include Islam and the political process, social movements, including mainstream Islamist movements and jihadi groups, Arab politics and Muslim politics in the 20th century, and the international relations of the Middle East. Jurgis is the author of two recently acclaimed books, Journey of the Jihadist Inside the Muslim Militancy, um, 2007, and The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global, 2005. And today he launches his most recent book, The Rise and Fall of Al-Qaeda, which will also be part of the topic of this lecture tonight. It gives me special pleasure to um, introduce Fawaz Jurgis, um, especially because we actually um, went to Oxford together, shared the same supervisor to whom this book is dedicated. Over to you, Fawaz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your wonderful introduction. And yes, it's a special privilege for me uh, to have you as a chair. I mean it. Um, and I thank all of you for coming tonight. Uh, to hear uh, today's talk, tonight's talk about uh, Al-Qaeda. And I think the first question that comes to mind, my mind, is that uh, why talk about Al-Qaeda? I mean, think of what's happening. Uh, why not talk about the Arab uprisings and the Arab awakenings? Much more important topic than Al-Qaeda. Uh, why not talk about uh, socioeconomic underdevelopment or development in the Middle East, which most countries in that part of the world suffer. We can talk about the numbers and the statistics. Uh, when I talk about the uh, sinister methods by the so-called the higher command of the Egyptian forces to keep power as much as long as possible and hijack the Egyptian revolution. And I'm, I'm being serious. Why not talk about the fierce struggle that's taken place in Iran between the office of the elected president and the divinely based Ayatollah? Uh, why not talk about the failure of American diplomacy, Barack Obama's diplomacy to broker a settlement on the Arab-Israeli uh, uh, theater? These are very critical topics, to my mind, uh, much more important than uh, Al-Qaeda. And the reason why you might say, why are we talking about Al-Qaeda, uh, has always been a tiny group, uh, has always been a social fringe, always, from its birth to the present. Uh, it has never, 
Al-Qaeda has never had a broadly based social constituency either in the Arab world or the Muslim world. Uh, Al-Qaeda has never been an important player in Arab and Muslim politics. Never. It has never been a driver either in Arab politics or Muslim politics. Yet, here I have written several books um, on this particular ideology. And I, I, I want to make a confession tonight is that truly I feel guilty uh, as a researcher who works on the Middle East really writing on these uh, topics because I know I can really devote my limited time and energy to more critical topics uh, uh, um, on the Middle East. You might say Al-Qaeda's ideology. Al-Qaeda's ideology transnational jihadism has never resonated with a critical segment of Arab and Muslim opinion. Never. There has never been. In fact, if you want to, the word about Al-Qaeda has always, thin is the word, and a social fringe is the word, if you really want. Um, it has never been a social movement, and you know we don't have the time to talk about the difference between a social fringe, a tiny fringe, um, and a social movement. There is no social movement. There has never been uh, a social movement. It has never grown other roots or deeper roots in that part of the world. Never. It's, 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 uh, and I, I'm, I'm being very precise. I'm choosing my words very precise. And I, I would be delighted for any, of you to read, any one of you to uh, puncture holes in some of the arguments I'm putting on the table. I really do. And I'm, I'm not being... Uh, I hope uh, I mean every word about uh, taking apart some of the points I am I'm putting on the table uh, tonight. Uh, at the height of its prowess in the late 1990s, Al-Qaeda Central numbered between 1,000 and 3,000, give and take. This is the, the numbers we have from everything that we know. 1,000, 3,000, give and take. We don't know exactly whether one... 1,500 or 2,000 or 3,000. That's the height of its prowess in the late 1990s. Uh, when Al-Qaeda carried out its brutal attacks against the United States on 9-11, Al-Qaeda was only five years old. What I mean, this is a very important point for us, I mean, students of I mean, social movements. That is, uh, the social foundation of a group tells you a great deal how consolidated, how broadly based. Uh, of course, terrorism experts would like you to believe, and we have an army of terrorism experts, that Al-Qaeda is at least 20 years old. Uh, because, you see, terrorism experts, and I, 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 the book really is as much a critique of the industry of terrorism experts as it is really as it provides a brief history. They tell you uh, that somehow there is a straightforward continuum line between Osama bin Laden and Sayyid Qutb, who was the master ideologue of the militant Islamist family, between Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, and Sayyid Qutb, and Ayatollah Khomeini, and Abdullah Azzam, and what have you. Straightforward continuum line. Uh, yet, uh, this particular, I mean, kind of history is very easy. No distinctions, no nuances, no complexities. If you want to understand Osama bin Laden, read Sayyid Qutb, and then you understand it's part of the whole monolith. Uh, in fact, after 
even the 9-11 Commission, and this is very important because I, my, my big points, I, I want to put my big points later on, but I'm just really laying out the, the, the structure of my argument, is because even the 9-11 Commission uh, basically posited that Al-Qaeda was not an isolated movement. Al-Qaeda was part of a broadly based ideological movement against the West. Al-Qaeda was part of a broadly based, including the Muslim Brotherhood, including various groups, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, um, uh, all of them were part of this particular, uh, and this, the reading was based on this really simplistic notion of history that somehow Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahi were the children of Sayyid Qutb, the children of Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, the children of Abdullah Azam. Uh, and there is no reason to really do any research to, to understand because once you draw this simple, straightforward continuum, continuum line in history, there is no reason even to talk about history. It's the end of the story. It's very simple. Then you can talk about Al-Qaeda and it's, you don't need to understand how this particular group, basically, it came into being in the 1990s. I mean, this is a, 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 a still a baby crawling, 9-11. I mean, it, in the 1990s, uh, that is, of course, I'm not denying, and I, in the book I show very clearly, some of the ideas that fertilized the ideology of global transnationalism, shared ideas about the world view, about the enemy, about the threats facing the uh, Arab world. But surely, I mean, they share some ideas, but the tactics differ, the methodology differ, the strategies differ, the actions differ. I mean, let's talk about, I mean, the militant Islamist family. The militant Islamist family is a broadly based uh, family, um, out of which, in the late, in the early 1990s, emerge, emerged transnational jihad or global jihad or al-Qaeda. Yet, from the early part of the 20th century until the 1990s, you know as well as I do, the basic targets of the militant Islamist family was the near enemy, not the far enemy. The near enemy meaning Arab and Muslim rulers as opposed to the West, the United States or Western leaders. That is, Sayyid Qutb uh, never, he never called for attacking the far enemy because that was not his interest. The interest of all the militant Islamists from the 1930s up to the early 1990s has always been the near enemy. Tyrants, they call them in, in, in Arabic, at-tawaghid. The tyrants basically who oppress their people, who do govern and rule according to Islamic law. They wanted to establish a state, a moral state, based on Islamic percepts uh, and ideas. That is in many ways, actually, if you really want to understand how Al-Qaeda and the ideology of transnational jihad has come into being, it's what I call a limited diversion. Uh, Al-Qaeda has always been a poor cousin within the militant Islamist family, the poorest cousin of all. In fact, if you really want to understand any social movement, you have to look at basically the narratives, the ideological narrative, the set of ideas. There is no such thing. In the 1990s up to the early 1990s, there was no ideological narrative, set of ideas that motivate and drive all the uh, narratives uh, basically related to the near enemy as opposed to the far enemy. There was nothing. Of course, there was no love affair between militant Islamists or mainstream Islamists and the West for a variety of reasons, but never a particular ideological narrative that concentrated and called for attacks against the West, not even against Israel. The, because the idea was once you liberate the homeland, 
will take care of Israel. Remember, Ayman Zawahiri, up to 1995, 1995, writing in the journal, in one of the top journals of al-Jihad, he said, the road to Jerusalem goes through Cairo and Algeria and Amman. It doesn't go through Washington and New York and London or Madrid. Never. That's Ayman Zawahiri in 1995. Uh, uh, that's not Say Qutb basically preached to his uh, followers that the near enemy was the ultimate enemy because he is responsible. And they're interested, these ideologues really interested in basically uh, the, the internal structure as opposed to uh, foreign affairs, even though they, they accuse, they have accused the United States and the West of basically uh, uh, collaborating with tyrants in order to prevent the establishment of Islamic uh, states. Well, you might say, give us a break. Look what Al-Qaeda did on 9-11. Almost 3,000 Americans were killed. That you're saying Al-Qaeda not, was not an important player. 3,000 Americans. And I, I, I'm sure, and I don't mean any disrespect or to belittle the pain. Um, I myself, an American, what Al-Qaeda did on 9-11. But there was nothing historical about 9-11. The 9-11 attacks, as historians, many attacks similar have taken place. Part of warfare, part of struggle, part of the only unique and the only thing that was unique about the methodology of the methods used by Al-Qaeda. But in terms of being ahistorical, there was nothing unique or ahistorical about 9-11. Basically, a particular group attacking another, a state, because that particular group receives uh, that particular entity to have basically uh, uh, damaged or inflicted pain and casualties on it. Nothing. In fact, and one of the arguments of, of the book, of what I try to do is that America's actions, America's response to 9-11 turned a security irritant, a security nuisance into a strategic threat. That's really the first part of the book that I do. is to, I, I, It's a brief history of Al-Qaeda, how Al-Qaeda emerged out of the uh, family of militant Islamists and the differences and the similarities. The second part really focuses on the consequences, the cost and the consequences uh, of uh, the expansion of the American war on terror. And here I want to, and I, I don't think I'm going to say anything original, but just to give you an idea what I mean by the costs and consequences. If you buy my argument that Al-Qaeda was not a significant social creature, it was a security irritant. I'm not saying it's not dangerous please don't misunderstand me, then surely America's response to 9-11 should have taken an entirely different uh, route than what the United States did after 9-11. Because after 9-11, as you know, the United States declared all-out war, a global war against Al-Qaeda. Again, you know this, that Al-Qaeda is a $5 trillion project. That is, this social fringe creature has cost the United States actually more than $5 trillion. Uh, a new study by Brown University, leading economist at Brown University, after my book was published, estimate that the United States has spent between 3.5 and 4.2 trillion dollars, 3.5 and 4.2 trillion dollars on the wars in Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan and Iraq, and also assisting the uh, Pakistan army. They don't include the $1 trillion that the United States spent on domestic security since 9-11. These are indirect costs. We estimate the indirect, the numbers are, think about it, we're not talking about $5 billion. we're talking about $5 trillion. 
the United States more than $5 trillion uh, on this particular security irritant uh, uh, since 9-11. The United States has basically built a nearly one million men and women, one million men and women with high security clearances to hunt for the 1,000 and 3,000 fighters or militants and since 9-11. In fact, the United States did not build such an army even during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had between five and 8,000 uh, nuclear devices, 5 million man army, uh, 20,000 tanks, the ability to attack the European continent. The United States built a greater national security industrial complex after 9-11 to tackle Al-Qaeda greater and bigger than the army that the United States built during the Cold War between 1946 and 1989. And the reason why I asked earlier why do we have to study Al-Qaeda as, as a small non-state actor, this particular non-state, uh, and I'm really starting with the least important reasons why we should study Al-Qaeda. The money to me is the least important. I'm gonna, uh, because this non-state actor has basically precipitated a major shift in international relations and the international relations of the Middle East. It has precipitated a major, major power shift in uh, the international system and the international relations of the Middle East. What do I mean by that? It's not just when we say the United States has spent $5 trillion. I mean, think of the opportunity cost, what the United States has been doing since 9-11, focusing its energy on, on, on Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and the whole, uh, while the world was moving on while China and India and the great powers, uh, the United States was the unrivaled greatest superpower in the world on the morning after 9-11. I think it's fair to say, now given what has transpired in the last 10 years, that America's actions, and I'm not saying everything can be dumped on the box of the global war on terror, that a, I think we are witnessing the emergence of an inceptive multipolar system as opposed to a unipolar system as a direct results of what has happened in the last 10 years. Uh, that's the United States, not only, I mean, as you all know, fighting multiple wars on multiple uh, fronts, um, and the United States not only overextended, but even the American leadership, even President Obama, and has said it more than once, that the United States has declined in relative terms, and the United States is, uh, has overextended itself, and does not really have the capacity and the resources to do what uh, it used to do uh, between 1989 and 2001. I think uh, it's fair to say that we are really uh, uh, witnessing the, emergen the emergence of a new system, international system, with multiple uh, 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 power centers. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the United States is not uh, still a major superpower, but the United States does not really call the shots as it did after 9-11. And also we're witnessing what I call uh, awakened uh, uh, regional powers. Uh, and awakened regional powers. I'm, not, I'm talking about Turkey, I'm talking about uh, Iran. You have now uh, great regional powers that are defying the United States. Uh, I mean, Turkey's foreign policy is a great, since the American invasion of Iraq, is a testament to how far regional powers have come. Because I think the, even America's allies, and they have said it more than once, is that the idea of America as a rational, wise player, they no longer trust even. Uh, their allies, their ally, the United States, to act 
in a wise and rational uh, manner and protect and preserve the fragile uh, regional balance of power. I mean, think of the, of the, of the goal of, of the neoconservatives after 9-11. The idea was to basically consolidate uh, American hegemony and create a new regional system based on what the neoconservatives believed to be uh, the way to go forward and also to defeat uh, some of the regional powers that represented a, uh, a menace to America, in particular Iran uh, and Syria. And that was the, that's how the invasion of Iraq uh, was conceived uh, by the uh, new uh, conservatives. I mean, here you, you have Iran. Uh, it was an important regional power. But surely the American global war on terror, in particular in terms of the destruction of the Sunni-based Saddam Hussein regime and the hyper-Taliban uh, have turned Iran from an important regional player into the unrivaled regional superpower in the Gulf. And I don't think we can understand why Iran is making a serious bid for regional hegemony uh, in the Gulf and beyond without understanding uh, how America's actions directly contributed to the rise and the ambitions uh, of the Iranian uh, leadership. And I, yes, I, 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 I do, and I, one of the arguments uh, I make, I advance in the book, is that uh, there is a direct relationship between the neoconservative project and America's relative decline in the international system and the Middle East itself. Uh, and I, I, I use, uh, I cite, uh, not only numbers, but I cite statements by American leaders, including Barack Obama, to show how the global war on terror has damaged America's leadership, not in terms of moral standing, but also in, in terms of its capacity uh, to take uh, actions uh, worldwide. Uh, okay, you say, how about Al-Qaeda? I mean, America's actions were designed to defeat Al-Qaeda. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the basic but think of how what the global war and, uh, on terror did to Al-Qaeda, uh, and particularly the invasion uh, of Iraq. And I know, again, uh, one of the, 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 the basic um, uh, arguments in the book is that Al-Qaeda was defeated by 2002, early 2003, for all intents and purposes. Al-Qaeda was based in Afghanistan. It was dispersed uh, after Afghanistan hardly any shelters. In fact, European intelligence, we have many reports which show that Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri were on the run, being hunted by all security apparatus in the world. Uh, truly, uh, uh, I mean, uh, the war on terror, the, the fight against Al-Qaeda could have been concluded by 2003 if the new ideologues in the United States did not really basically escalate and decide to declare a global war uh, on terror. In this particular sense, uh, I think the, the American-led invasion of Iraq was godsend uh, for Al-Qaeda on multiple levels. Uh, I think it allowed Al-Qaeda, it, it, uh, it gave Al-Qaeda, it has given ideological motivation because Iraq became a rallying cry for tens of thousands of young Arabs and Muslims that the United States was not fighting Al-Qaeda, the United States was fighting, waging uh, war against Islam uh, and Muslims. In fact, uh, and I, I've written extensively on the consequences of the American uh, war in Iraq. If it was not for logistical reasons, if it, if it really, if it was not for tremendous efforts, billions of dollars spent by the United States on the neighborhood, the flow of young Arabs and Muslims to Iraq would have exceeded the flow of young Muslims to Afghanistan throughout the 1980s. That Iraq 
resonated more in the imagination of Arabs and Muslims than Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as you all know. No Al-Qaeda in Iraq. I don't need to tell you that. Um, uh, when Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, uh, when he came to uh, Kurdistan, when he fled uh, Afghanistan and Iran, he had 17, fewer than 17 members of his advisors. Uh, by 2004-2005, the army of Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi numbered in the thousands. In fact, numbers in tens of thousands. Uh, this tells you a great deal about how Iraq became a rallying cry. Not uh, many Muslims, young Muslims, they joined Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi's army not because they believed in Al-Qaeda's ideology, because Al-Qaeda was a vanguard, has a big shot in Iraq, and was basically uh, fighting the coalition forces uh, and the Americans. Uh, but the irony, and this is the irony about, I started by saying that the ideology of transnational jihad had never had any constituency in the Arab and Muslim world, that Iraq was Al-Qaeda to lose. If Al-Qaeda could have won anywhere in the world, it should have been Iraq. Given the ideological mobilization, and yet Al-Qaeda met its Waterloo in Iraq, uh, not in Afghanistan. Uh, because I think Muslim public opinion and Arab Muslim public opinion came to realize that Al-Qaeda's transnational ideology no blueprint, no future, no uh, developmental program, nothing at all, killing for the sake of killing. In fact, Iraq, and I, I, I make the argument in the book, became the graveyard, not only of Al-Qaeda, but even of transnational jihad itself. Because Arabs and Muslims came to realize what Al-Qaeda, I mean, I think the, the, the conventional narrative says that the United States defeated Al-Qaeda in Iraq. In fact, it was Sunni public opinion that basically hammered the final nail in the coffin of Al-Qaeda in Iraq because I think Sunni public opinion in Iraq finally came to realize that, yes, yeah, of course, they're fighting the American invaders, but Al-Qaeda represents a much more sinister and insidious threat to the Sunni community in terms of open society, in terms of coexistence, sectarian uh, coexistence. Because Al-Qaeda, what Al-Qaeda was trying to do was to engineer and fuel a sectarian strife between Sunnis and uh, Shias. Uh, so in this particular sense, what Iraq tells us about the limits of transnational jihad, the limits of Al-Qaeda, there is no constituency. If Al-Qaeda could not win in Iraq, where, where, Al could, where else uh, can Al-Qaeda win, given everything that transpired between 2003 uh, and 2007? Uh, and I think, and I, you know, I started by talking about cost and consequences. I have hardly mentioned a word about what has happened in Iraq as a result of the American invasion. Um, I, I don't need to tell you what has happened. I don't need to tell you how the country was destroyed. I, I don't need to tell you the numbers of civilian casualties. You, you know the numbers. Uh, the numbers range between 200,000 and 1 million civilians. Um, the sectarian, I mean, again, uh, uh, divide in Iraq has never been as, as big as it is today. Uh, you know, several million refugees. And how the sectarian divide has migrated and from Iraq to other countries, including Lebanon uh, and other places. Again, uh, we're talking about really, in, in a way, I'm focusing on the technical aspects and really neglecting the bigger uh, human 
dimensions of the U.S. Uh, war uh, on terror. Uh, and not only, uh, not only you're talking about Iraq, think of the side effects, what we call blowback, uh, the, the war on terror. I mean, I, I'm sure you have heard so much about the so-called homegrown terrorism, uh, homegrown radicalism. These young Muslims, some young, we have a small fringe elements in the United States and the West who basically have joined or have embraced this particular ideology. Hardly a single word is being said in most of the, what you read by terrorism experts about the relationship between the global war on terror and this phenomenon called homegrown terrorism. In fact, chapter five, I spent an entire chapter, case by case, showing a direct linkage between the U.S. war on terror and the phenomenon of what we call homegrown radicalization and terrorism. In every case, between 2003 and 2006, most of the cases we have, Iraq was the rallying cry of most deluded young Muslims who live in Western societies who basically, and now Pakistan and Afghanistan has replaced Iraq as a rallying cry for a very small, tiny uh, group of young Muslims who believe that the United States is waging uh, war against uh, their societies. Again, you might say why we're talking about Al-Qaeda. Even though President Barack Obama no longer really subscribes to the term the war on terror, I mean, there is a full war on terror, as you know, being waged as we talk, a 24-hour, I mean, 7-7. Seven, seven. Uh, the, bigger, the biggest war is now taking place no longer in Afghanistan. It's in Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia and other places, truly. Full-fledged. I mean, you, you're talking about the entire American military uh, machine is basically waging all-out war, and the, the, it's technically winning uh, uh, the fight because it's breaking the backbone of the, what we call Al-Qaeda central. And, but the consequences, the human consequences, are tremendous, not, not in terms of civilian casualties, in terms of radicalization. Radicalization in particular in Pakistan, in Pakistani society, we don't have the time. How the US war on terror in Pakistan has radicalized the urban middle class, and in particular, the junior officers uh, in Pakistan. I'm not suggesting that ideology, ideology does not play a role in the phenomenon, what you call homegrown uh, radicalization. But I'm also suggesting that the U.S. war on terror or the perception of the U.S. war on terror in certain places play a key role in the radicalization of a small group of young Muslims who live um, in uh, some Western societies. And I'm talking about the small, limited, very alarming. We're talking about really um, 200 uh, uh, youngsters. We're not talking about huge uh, phenomenon, but still very alarming when you have relatively well-integrated young Muslims who live in America and the West who decide to basically declare war on their societies and decide to really kill themselves and uh, hurt their own, uh, I mean, their fellow citizens. Very alarming. It's very alarming. It tells us about how uh, radicalization has taken place. This is really what, in, in a way, the book has three uh, components. It's a history of Al-Qaeda. It's also a critique of the American global war on terror and the cost and the consequences. Uh, and also a chapter on homegrown, uh, 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 homegrown radicalization. Uh, you might say, where's Al-Qaeda today? I mean, I, I just want to conclude to give you an idea. Uh, where are we today? Al-Qaeda no longer exists as an effective organization. It's no longer there, Al-Qaeda Central. It, it's, it's, it's basically 
uh, no command and control structure anymore. And this is not just the result of now. Several years, there is no command and control. Most of the mid-level lieutenants and managers, the ones who plot and conceptualize attacks, have been uh, eliminated, gone. Hardly any, I mean, we're talking about uh, fewer than a dozen now. Uh, I don't think there is a dozen anymore. Most of the foot soldiers uh, have either been killed uh, uh, or captured. Uh, there are no skilled, either foot soldiers or no skilled mid-level. And these are not my, my own. This is the, even the American intelligence reports and the Western intelligence reports. I'm not, I'm not saying anything original here. Uh, Al-Qaeda is down. It was at the height of its power in the late 1990s was between 1,000 and 3,000. Uh, now we estimate there's about fewer than 25 Al-Qaeda unskilled in Afghanistan, according to uh, American, uh, the American military. And the highest estimate we have in Pakistan, between 100 and 200 members, again, on the run and being hunted uh, by the United States. And even, uh, of course, there are some local branches uh, and these are, we can talk about the local branches in Yemen and in Iraq and other, and this is post 9-11, uh, in fact, they're post 2003. Most of these cases really came into being uh, after, uh, I mean, I, let me, I mean, I, just to provoke you, but to give you an idea about the homegrown radicalization and local branches. Take the case of Anwar al-Awlaqi. Anwar al-Awlaqi is an American uh, preacher, an American Yemeni preacher who was just killed by an American drone, along with several uh, uh, lieutenants. How many of you know that Anwar al-Awlaqi, between 2001 and 2004, he was a frequent visitor to the Defense Department and the CIA in Washington? Anwar al-Awlaqi <coughs> was a leading Muslim cleric, basically willingly volunteering to try to appeal to Muslim public opinion against al-Qaeda. It was genuine. It was not, I mean, I'm not talking about, he believed that what Al-Qaeda did online, he, not he, I mean, I didn't have the time to tell you about Muslim public opinion and how Muslim public opinion responded to 9-11. See, when uh, the whole ideology of, I mean, Osama bin Laden, he believed that if the United States had dared to invade Afghanistan, he used the term before 9-11, there will be a river of recruits traveling to Afghanistan to defend the Islamic Emirates, the Taliban. American <coughs> intelligence estimates estimate that fewer than two dozens Muslims traveled to Afghanistan to defend the Islamic Emirates after 9-11. Fewer than two dozens. Anwar al-Awlaqi spent many days in the Defense Department and in Washington appealing to Muslim public opinion. It was in 2004 that Anwar al-Awlaqi, he and many others, who basically believed that what the United States was doing in Iraq was basically was not a war against al-Qaeda, but was a war against Islam and Muslims. You don't hear about that. That's, it's, the question is not to justify what Anwar al-Awlaqi did in terms of trying to, uh, I mean, uh, appeal to some young uh, Muslims in Western societies to attack their societies. That's not the question. But also to contextualize the whole phenomenon of what we call homegrown terrorism and also the side effects of the war uh, on terror. And everything I say to you, I mean, this is, again, if you, if you read and if you really closely read the documents by Ayman Zawahiri and by Osama bin Laden and the lieutenants uh, in the late 1990s, 1999, documents captured 
by American, uh, the American military in Afghanistan, ideology based on two basic premises, a two-pronged strategy. The first, they want to basically force the United States to get out of its uh, and, and basically be embroiled in Muslim lands. That is, was they, the only way, uh, basically, uh, they could really fight the United States on an equal playing field was to force the United States into Muslim land. And secondly, the idea was to bleed the United States economically. That, that's the only way. Is really, if you want, because America and American citizens respond to economic necessities. Uh, and that's exactly, I mean, and I know this is not a polemical point, that's exactly what the ideologues in the United States uh, did after 9-11. Not because there was no debate uh, in the United States. I mean, there were two basic premises, two basic debates uh, competing for influence in the United States. One particular argument said that Al-Qaeda was a tiny fringe, insignificant player. And the worst thing you can do is to really declare a global war against a, a fringe, an a, a, a insignificant social creature. You can do it using fight the war on your own terms. The new conservatives had a different idea. The new conservative wanted to social engineer change. And in, in the words of Condoleezza Rice, uh, they wanted to strike at the very heart of the region that gave birth to these kind of, of, of youngsters. And I think in this particular sense, an alternative argument implicit in, in, in my argument and many others that 9-11 could have been used as a catalyst to renew American leadership to bring about really real change in America's leadership in the region uh, because uh, that was painful as it was, horrible as it was, insidious as it was. I mean, 9-11 could have been used in a positive way as opposed to uh, trying to social engineer change and basically create a system uh, based on an ideological narrative that has little to do uh, with the realities, with the social realities in the region. Because if they had any idea about history in the region, uh, that is, uh, imposing change from the top down by a Western power basically reminds many Arabs and Muslims of the entire historical legacy. I mean, it's just simple undergraduate stuff, truly. That is, you can't do it. And what we are witnessing today in that part of the world tells us a great deal about change from the bottom up as opposed to the change from top down, and also about internal change as opposed to uh, externally uh, exposed change. And I fear, I truly fear, that even though Al-Qaeda has been dismantled, Al-Qaeda central, even though Al Osama bin Laden is that, that basically the cost and the consequences of 9-11, that um, Osama bin Laden is probably, and I hope I am wrong, is probably uh, smiling in his uh, Arabian uh, seabed grave. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Georges. Um, now I'd like to move to questions and answers and comments. Can I ask everyone to please give their name and affiliation and to wait for the roving microphones? We've got them at two end, so please speak only once you've gotten the microphone. Um, start right there. Hello, my name is <coughs> Emmanuel Yucutiel. Um, I just graduated from Williams College in Massachusetts. I'm traveling the world on a Watson Fellowship studying gay rights movements abroad, and I just popped into this lecture kind of um, on a whim. Uh, my, my question is uh, to you, <coughs> now we're 10 years later and all this has happened, um, what would you say now would be the best way for America to 
at once repair its, its image abroad, especially in the Muslim world, at the same time maintain the security of its people 10 years later, now that we're here? What would you advise America to do to kind of fix the situation that we're in currently? Thank you. Should we take three, four questions? It's easy. And then... Sure, let's take three questions. Uh, would I, my name is David Harrington, I'm a public citizen. Uh, would I be right in concluding, you seem surprised by the American reaction to 9-11. I mean, aren't we here talking about American politics? Yes, my name is Joel Spray Reagan. Uh, I'm from Chicago. I came to see a Gershwin show around the corner and uh, was delighted to find the lecture was taking place. <laughs> Uh, my question is whether uh, your description of radicalization in Pakistan, which is a problem, it's certainly a mess, uh, is a little too facile. Pakistan was born as a religious state. It was unstable from the beginning. Bangladesh dropped out. Uh, Pakistan traditionally murdered or assassinated or executed uh, its political leadership. Uh, as to exactly why Osama was hidden there, I don't think we know all the reasons, but. Uh, it, it shows it would tend to support par part of your thesis. Um, but when I look at what the Pakistanis did uh, in Mumbai, uh, uh, which is one of their worst atrocities, they've done others, uh, and that certainly came from these intelligence services uh, as well as the uh, fanatics they sent, uh, I don't see any really relation uh, to what America did in, uh, in Iraq. Thank you. Um, I don't know what the United States can do. I mean, that's, that's, that's a very, very difficult question. It really is. And I, I, I mean it. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that part of the world probably has moved really uh, on and is moving on. And really, what's one of the most fascinating uh, I mean, developments for me as a student of that part of the world is that the level of maturity and uh, I think what we are, for the first time, we're seeing really indigenous-based movements. Uh, indigenous-based movements are really interested in focusing on the real problems in the region. I think one of the most fascinating and promising things, we don't see American flags being burned, we don't see talks about Western colonialism, we don't even see Israel as a dominant factor in the equation. Uh, I mean, the focus is on basically on bread and butter, on freedom, on questions of quality of life, on pride uh, and dignity. Uh, and this tells you a great deal uh, that because you see, uh, and I, I, this is not a polemical question, I think the whole idea uh, uh, after 9-11 was that uh, Osama bin Laden uh, basically uh, spoke for millions of Arabs and Muslims. That is, uh, the Arab world is divided really was the bipolar uh, I mean, nature of the Arab world. So on the one hand, uh, extremism and, and, and uh, uh, jihadism and uh, Islamism and autocracy, there was nothing else. Uh, there was no, no uh, public opinion. Uh, there was no third constituency. Uh, I think what we have witnessed in the last, I mean, uh, eight, nine months is that there is public opinion that there is a third alternative, that Al-Qaeda's ideology, that people in Egypt and other places, uh, you've seen the slogan that, uh, in fact, uh, I would argue that one of the major losers, so far, of course, early, is Al-Qaeda's ideology. Uh, that is, uh, there is no constituency uh, for Al-Qaeda's ideology. But uh, I think 
what you have seen in the last eight months is also how the President Barack Obama has responded. That the United States really not only no longer calls the shots in that part of the world, the United States does not really have the means to influence developments uh, in that part of the world. In his speech, in his May 11th speech, 2011, President Obama gave a wonderful speech about the United States embracing uh, basically the revolts and the uprisings and the awakenings in that part of the world. It was truly, in terms of rhetoric, one of the most probably <coughs> visionary speeches that the United States reorienting its foreign policy in order to embrace uh, the new developments. Yet, in terms of initiatives, there was no hardly any initiative, hardly any martial plans, hardly any concrete steps really to address the structural crisis that exists uh, in Egypt. In terms of Egypt, he offered Egypt $1 billion in terms of debt's reduction and another billion, $1 billion in terms of uh, uh, trade. Uh, I would have expected, if you ask me what the United States do, and, and we're not going to talk about rhetoric in terms of people, few Egyptians and few Arabs really watched that particular speech, uh, I would have expected a package of $100 billion, truly. $100 billion, not of American money. There is no money, American money. But the United States, because we have spent the money. Uh, and again, one of the reasons the United States still spending on average $100 billion in Afghanistan, on the war in Afghanistan, is costing the American taxpayer $100 billion as we talk. Uh, but $100 billion in terms of Marshall plans, the United States should have played a kind of leadership. There's tons of money in the region, but there is no leadership, there is no vision, there is no grand vision to really bring about and uh, invest the money in the transitional, in the societies that are transitioning in Egypt and Tunisia and other places. And that's what we don't see. Because the reality is, and, and some of you, I don't know if you know, that the Middle East is not a high priority on President Barack Obama's. In fact, when he came to office in 2000, I mean, in fact, he, he wanted to cut the umbilical cord. He wanted to shift American focus to the Pacific Ocean. He believes that that's where the American future. And really his outreach, the whole ideology, the whole strategy of outreach to Muslims was to repair the damage that was done by, I mean, the neoconservatives and move on. That was because they believed that the United States had too much, had invested too much in the region, that there was nothing there except. And he did not want to get enrolled in the region. But of course, the Arab awakenings really forced Obama's hand. But yet, even though one would have expected President Obama to take a leadership role, and really, uh, we don't see it. We don't see it even though rhetorically he has embraced the awakening, even though I think he, he, did, he did the right thing in terms of Libya by keeping his distance, but not, not taking ownership of what's happening in Libya. I don't need to tell you what Barack Obama has done or has not done on the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, I mean, dismal failure, unfortunately, uh, that the president has not been able to translate his, his rhetoric into reality and really bring about a two-state solution. And that's really, if you want to, again, not to be a broken record, you want to basically begin the healing, stop the shedding of Jewish and Arab blood. That's a central element. And he knows that, and he, he, he made it very clear in Cairo 2009 that that's really a priority of American foreign policy. And now it's, we know nothing's going to happen in the next one year and a half. We just failed to deliver, unfortunately. Uh, so uh, that's my thoughts on, on, uh, on the question of American politics and American. I am surprised <coughs> uh, that the United States uh, acted the way it did. Uh, because the United States, I don't need to tell you, uh, and, and this is cliche, uh, is one of the 
probably the most powerful nation in the world, has one of the most uh, deeply embedded uh, elite in the world, uh, one of the most, I mean, progressive constitution checks and balances, uh, tens of thousands of scholars in international relations and strategy. In fact, truly, when the history of this chapter is written, and it won't be written until 50 years, the question is not whether the United States, why the United States invaded Iraq. The question is why did the American system fail? Uh, that is really the big question about, I mean, what happened between 2001 and 2003. Uh, that is, the American system basically failed. The checks and balances that the founding fathers put in place. Here you have a tiny, small, regardless, these must be brilliant, small, tiny group of elite hijacked American foreign policy, hijacked America for many years, with devastating consequences, not just for America, but uh, for uh, the world as well. Yes, Pakistan is very complex, very complicated. And I don't mean at all to really distort or simplify the complexity of the Pakistani situation. Uh, and, but you know the history of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and you know the history of how Pakistan was used as an outlet for mobilization of Mujahideen, and how uh, multiple layers of uh, basically ideological mobilization taking place. And I think, uh, I mean, for multiple reasons, you have, uh, I mean, Pakistan faces a structural crisis, economically, politically, uh, you might say existential crisis as a state, the identity of the state itself. But the U.S. war on terror, unfortunately, has not helped. That's, I mean, my, my take on it is that, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm basing my, really, analysis on American reports, on um, top American commanders uh, saying that what, they, what they're terrified most of all is that the radicalization of the junior officer corps in, in Pakistan, uh, the perception that the United States violates their dignity, their sovereignty, their perception, and th there is a revolt within the junior officer corps in Pakistan. And I wonder, I'm just wonder, and I, I, I'm not an expert on Pakistan in any, I'm just a consumer, I wonder whether Pakistan would come to haunt us in the same way that Afghanistan did uh, after, the, uh, after the Soviets pulled out, given the multiple crisis uh, that exists in Pakistan. Um, another three questions. Let's start right here. Uh, good evening. The name's um, Ewan Grant. I'm a former intelligence analyst with uh, Customs and Excise, but um, my experiences I'm referring to now are after that. Um, when working in Yemen in 2009, the uh, diners at the table next to us in the restaurant were killed by a suicide bomb two days later, and when their relatives were being flown in to collect their remains, um, there was a, an unsuccessful uh, suicide bomber attack on the convoy from the airport, so uh, uh, best not say about my views on the international community in Yemen. I, my question is really following on from the gentleman's, from Chicago's comment about Pakistan and your, your response, um, which I think cautious, but um, how well do you think the U.S. Um, prevention and deterrence response you mentioned is having on dealing with the cultural issues, the hearts and minds issues, particularly in relation to Pakistan, but elsewhere it's clear from the 
as, as you say, spending the money in relation to winning hearts and minds. Okay, there's a question, young man in the black right there. <laughs> Thanks, first I'd like to thank you for an excellent lecture. Um, I'm a visiting student from McGill University, just here for a year, um, but I also took a selection of courses on terrorism at uh, Columbia University. And my question in short is, how do you respond to your critics? Um, the ones I'm talking about in this case are ones who would directly put into question um, the strength of Al-Qaeda. So um, in essence, how do you respond to those at, for example, Columbia University who would design entire courses that are focused on taking you know, a first assumption, which is Al-Qaeda is still extremely strong, and the whole course is designed not to give you a conception of the group, but to really um, uh, emphasize how to make the U.S. approach better, how to deepen intelligence, and how to fight this war. Thank you. One more question. There. Thank you, Professor, for the lecture. My name is Jamil Abdullah. I'm from Nigeria. I'm, I'm also a visitor to London and the LSE. My question is, um, what is your view on the concept of Islamophobia? There is this general perception that the U.S. and the Western society are somehow, you know, afraid of Islam as, a, as an emerging civilization. So what is your take on that? Okay. Let me start with your question because I am this the duty about really having time for questions because uh, I, you know, it forces me to elaborate because I, I really hardly touched the surface when I talked about cost and consequences. I did not mention the cultural reverberations in the U.S. war on terror uh, inside the United States itself. Uh, I mean, you know America very well. I really had not imagined in my wildest dreams that the debates, uh, in particular, uh, on a, an Islamic center in New York would take on uh, uh, that bitter and sinister uh, turn. I had never imagined in the United States that politicians right and left basically use the, the, the idea as sharia to, uh, call it sharia, to basically as a whipping uh, uh, methodology. Uh, it is, uh, if you look at America, the cultural, the Islamophobia, it's an industry of 40 million dollars a year. The whole industry in the United States, the numbers we have, uh, I mean, whole industry uh, to link Islam and Muslims with Islamophobia. Politicians, you can use any politicians. We, I mean, there were certain campaigns, congressional campaigns, and they basically experimented with the idea using, uh, I mean, the fear of Islam and Muslims as a electoral tactic. Uh, the polls we have in the United States are very disturbing. Uh, that more and more Americans, as a result of the cultural mobilization, the ideological mobilization, now link Islam and Muslims with violence. And I'm talking about, uh, I mean, major polls. And the numbers are majority of Americans. Uh, as a result, uh, yet in the, on the morning after 9/11. Uh, most Americans did not link Islam with Al-Qaeda, yet the, this, 
global war, given what has happened, given the horrible, I mean, uh, suicide bombings and uh, American casualties in Iraq, uh, it's a major thing. I mean, we talked about the cultural reverberations. Really, Al-Qaeda, one of the central arguments in the book is that Al-Qaeda has taken hold of the American imagination, uh, literally. Uh, a majority of Americans think of Al-Qaeda as the greatest threat to America. I mean, it's more than uh, nuclear-based armed Iran or Korea, the polls we have. They view Al-Qaeda as a greater threat because of the ideological mobilization. In fact, the greatest success of the new, the new conservative was not the invasion of Iraq, how they instilled in the American imagination this fear, irrational, truly. Uh, I mean, I spend a great deal of space in the book uh, documenting this particular uh, really uh, shifts in the American imagination. Uh, even Barack Obama, who came to office, I mean, one single attack would undermine his presidency. I mean, that, he, ca he cannot say no to the, national, to the national security industrial complex because what if one single attack takes place? Uh, that's how bad it is in, in America. And this one link it with the idea of the links of Al-Qaeda. It's not about whether Al-Qaeda can basically carry out a similar attack to 9-11. We know it can't anymore. It does not have the asset. It does not have the human capacity. It does not have the managers, uh, even though you might say it might be able to succeed to deliver one attack or so suicide bombings. But one single attack, Barack Obama presidency cannot afford to have one single attack. And this brings us to the question, I mean, the whole idea no one is suggesting. We can have a debate and say Al-Qaeda represents a security irritant and nuisance. It's dangerous. What can we do about it? It's a fair argument. Al-Qaeda killed thousands of Americans. It has killed tens of thousands of Arabs and Muslims over the years. Let's talk about it. But it's one thing to say it's a security irritant, another thing to say it's a strategic threat, and another thing to say we, have, we need to have a security system, absolute security. I mean, the first thing we teach our students in international relations, there is no absolute security. We have to start from the premise, and you, you, you tell your, your teachers at Columbia, there is no absolute security. Once we accept this particular premise, how do you basically, uh, I mean, how do you then you construct a system, a secure system that prevent, I mean, or give you maximum security as opposed to absolute security? Uh, so terrorism experts, I mean, when I said five trillion, the biggest money in Al-Qaeda is the biggest money in Washington now. I mean, this is, it's big money. You're talking about consultancy. I mean, you're talking about 30, 40 billion dollars in private, in individual consultancy in Washington on security. Uh, you have an army of terrorism experts. Departments have been established in universities. I mean, think about it. Whatever the empire wants, whatever the empire is. I mean, that's exactly what happened after the Cold War. Uh, studies about the Soviet Union, I mean, mushroomed, and that's exactly what happened after 9-11. Uh, I mean, think of the applications we received, even Middle Eastern studies, counterterrorism, Islamist militants, huge. All of us were forced to, uh, I mean, think about the question of, of militants. So, yes, if your well-being, if your entire is on that, I mean, is based on the idea of terrorism, I mean, I mean, think of how Europe dealt with terrorism in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and how the United States dealt with terrorism. I'm not underestimating, I'm not belittling, truly, the, I mean, huge, uh, painful uh, wounds that 9-11 did in America. I mean, uh, as a country that was never attacked, the homeland, and, and also, I mean, 3,000, almost 3,000 innocent Americans, and 
people from all over the world killed. Uh, absolutely, it's a shock. But it's one thing to say that we have a problem. It's a security irritant. Another thing you say that somehow you're having a strategic threat. We have to mobilize. One of the most important ideological mobilization in American history. I mean, th this is not just war. This is, I mean, the greatest power in the world mobilizing its resources to fight. I mean, an enemy, well, a security irritant. And in the, in the meantime, you're creating more enemies. Uh, and that's exactly what we did, that we have created more enemies. As I mean, to, again, I, I, Iraq, you know <coughs> as much as I do. Not even a suicide, single suicide bombing before 2003. Not even one. We have witnessed between 4,000 and 5,000 suicide bombings between 2003 and uh, 2007. Al-Qaeda in Iraq managed to recruit more men than Al-Qaeda central of Osama bin Laden as a result of the... I mean, these are serious questions. It's, it, so what, what do I tell terrorism experts? I mean, they're producing reports on, um, I mean, terrorism in, 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 in space, outer space. And no, seriously. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is surreal. It is surreal. I mean, an army of terrorism experts, they have to legitimize, like all of us. I mean, we researchers, we have to earn our salaries. <coughs> Uh, and that's exactly uh, what you have, I mean, the army of terrorism experts, you name it. Uh, and the biggest topic now is homegrown radicalization and terrorism, because you have about 100, 200, uh, very alarming, no doubts about it. But again, we need to talk about, and we need to talk about local branches, how can we deal with, bring me to the question of Yemen. Yemen is, uh, has always, I mean, keep in mind, uh, I mean, the relationship between the Yemeni regime and uh, jihadists go back to uh, the 1990s. In fact, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president of Yemen, used jihadists as a spearhead in order to unify the country in the war. This is a major, uh, 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 and it's not just Anwar al-Awlaqi. Anwar al-Awlaqi is a related comer to al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Yemen, sorry, in, in, in Yemen. Uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, I mean the relationship between the security forces in Yemen and Al-Qaeda go back to truly the early 1990s um, and has always been uh, nourished for used and abused for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I think of the question, I mean Ayman Zawahi uses different methodology uh, in order to maximize his uh, bargaining power with the United States. After 9-11 he went out of his way to collaborate with the United States and then he, he, he basically changes strategy depending on, on what his interests are at a particular uh, moment. Um, uh, and you have, we estimate, again, based on everything that we know, you have between 50 and 300 Al-Qaeda members in Yemen. Uh, this is a, uh, most of whom are very unskilled, very poor tribesmen who join Al-Qaeda against Ali Saleh because they're very angry with the dictatorship as opposed to being... Um, but the numbers, the skilled numbers of Al-Qaeda in Yemen number about 20 or so, uh, according to American intelligence services and various independent uh, reports. Uh, and this brings me to how the United States, I mean, whether the United States is succeeded, uh, succeeding in its cultural... I mean, I think in terms of... You've seen that America's investment, the trillions of dollars, have produced major results in terms of technical uh, uh, successes. I mean, uh, if you look at what the United States has done in Pakistan in the last few years, it has broken the backbone of Al-Qaeda Central. It has killed most of its uh, mid-level managers, 
most of its lieutenants, including its chief, Osama bin Laden. Uh, technically, the United States, uh, because you have the assets, are, I mean, it's surreal. What, you, you can, um, uh, I mean, you have tremendous uh, resources. I fear that the cultural costs uh, basically must be taken into account, that the blowback questions must be taken into account. I mean, it's one thing the United States is technically winning the war and yet losing the, the, the greatest struggle. That's, that's what my fear. And I, I, not just in terms of the blowback, in terms of radicalization. Even in Yemen, I was, I and many others, Americans were against killing, assassinating al-Awlaki because uh, al-Awlaki had no follower, followers, I mean, no huge following in Yemen. Really, he's, uh, and you could have used different uh, methods in order to bring al-Awlaki to justice uh, instead of just trying to, uh, and the United States now is waging all-out drone uh, war in Yemen, not just in Pakistan. United States, I mean, the drone attacks, uh, I mean, they're multiplied over the years. In particular, uh, Barack Obama is a great believer in the drone uh, war. Uh, they are, in fact, uh, the, 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 the United States cannot build enough drones. Uh, There's so much demand for drones. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, uh, because they're effective in killing um, basically uh, in targeting uh, specific individuals, not to mention, of course, you have a lot of civilians that are being killed in the process, both in Pakistan uh, in Yemen. And the numbers, I mentioned the numbers based on independent sources by human rights organizations and also American. Uh, make no mistake about it. Uh, the United States is, has won the war against Al-Qaeda, but has not won Arab and Muslim hearts. I hope I did not. Uh, I think the biggest loss of Al-Qaeda was not the military campaign. Al-Qaeda has suffered a catastrophic military defeat. But the greater defeat that Al-Qaeda has suffered is losing Muslim minds. At the end of the day, their, I, their strategy from day one was based on the idea, because you see, Ayman Zawahi, who is the ideologue of Al-Qaeda, believed that the reason why jihadists lost the war against the near enemy, the near enemy Muslim uh, rulers, because they were unable to create a social constituency, a social base, that Muslims did not buy their nonsensical ideology. And they, of course, they hated Mubarak and they hated the Algerian military, but they did not believe that the jihadists had a, blup a blueprint for their society. So what Ayman Zawahiri said that we must create a constituency, a social base, because we stand up against the United States and we defend the Ummah. That was, he said, that's the only way we can proceed. That's the only way we can really create anything out of uh, this ideology. It's a massive crisis of legitimacy. Um, of course, there was no social base to start with, but in fact, Al-Qaeda's brutal attacks against civilians uh, have turned even the tiny, small Muslim public opinion against uh, Al-Qaeda. I mean, I think the greatest loss for Al-Qaeda was not just the military defeat is the loss, really, of Arab and Muslim hearts. I mean, I think, and that's what I said, really, Arabs and Muslims really have basically traveled far and beyond. Uh, the big debate in the Arab and Muslim world is not what Al-Qaeda has or doesn't have. That's not the question. It, it just basically, uh, I mean, even when Osama bin Laden was killed, people, it's just, it, it, it's really a little footnote. Uh, and this tells you about the, how the United States, and that's where, I mean, I think, in this particular sense, I think Barack Obama, uh, is, of course, much more intelligent and more sophisticated. Uh, he, he, he basically, he and his team know the nuances, uh, uh, yet at the same time, they cannot really reduce, they cannot really lower 
the uh, uh, temple of the, the, the counterterrorism because he knows from day one he made his, his most strategic important priority was the war against Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden from day one. Like he said, that's it. I want to dismantle Al-Qaeda and their extremist allies and the entire American security apparatus <coughs> is designed to do so. And I think technically, uh, I think Al-Qaeda was, was, uh, was defeated by 2006, 2007, uh, but for now I think it's, it's no longer exists as an effective organization, even though it's still plotting, even the remnants of Al-Qaeda, even the few remnants of Al-Qaeda still plot operationally against American targets and Western targets. Shall what time is it now? <laughs> so we have, okay, we have one more round? One more round. And I with Roger, there's a question here. Okay, right. Start with Roger, and then we'll take a couple of questions from the back. Thanks. I'm Roger Hardy. I'm a visiting fellow here, and before that I was a journalist across the road in Bush House at the BBC. One can accept wholeheartedly that the United States overreacted one can accept without difficulty that Iraq was a tremendous own goal and a tremendous gift to bin Laden. But still wonder about um, what some analysts, I don't think you're one of them, but some analysts, I mean Mark Sageman is perhaps one of the best known, would call the Al-Qaeda social movement. All these individual guys, the so-called leaderless jihad, the homegrown in Britain, anywhere in the, in the world. Now, presumably, you, you don't accept that label that they are an Al-Qaeda. They constitute, never, never mind how small that they constitute an Al-Qaeda social movement, that's Sageman's <laughs> phrase. Because if he's right, then this movement, in other words, the Al-Qaeda idea, will outlast Al-Qaeda itself, according to this view. So if that view is right, well, maybe there is life after death. Yes. Wait for the microphone. Sorry, Ellen Darendorf, um, former LSE person. Uh, you focused very much on the United States, but I think it's important to remember what happened in this country and that Tony Blair to this day is in denial about the relationship between um, uh, homegrown uh, jihadism and um, foreign policy abroad and he also is in denial he, well, he makes, doesn't make any distinction to this day between Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Hamas and he's the head of the quartet so it's, um, it's, it's very dismal and all this does feed Islamophobia in this country and no doubt in the United States you hear you constantly hear where are the moderate Muslims because they showed the picture of rejoicing in a few Palestinian refugee camps but there is, seems to be total ignorance and a failure of the press to um, discuss the debate going on in Arabic in the Islamic world that you discuss so cogently in your book, and that's why I think your book is terribly important. Thank you. Wearing 
Um, I'm doing my A-levels at the Home Department School and my name is Yalim John. Um, well, I think this whole Al-Qaeda thing, it's kind of fueled um, Islamophobia in our country. Uh, so do you think we should introduce measures to um, kind of ban extreme, I mean, I can't say extreme, but like, like France, um, ban like the hijab and the burqa and things like that? <laughs> Sorry, my question's no, What's unfair. your question? Can you, can you speak louder a bit? What's your question? Uh, um, do you think Britain, like France, should introduce measures to um, ban the burqa? Because obviously um, Islamophobia is growing in our country. Uh, well, I'll, I'll listen. Thank you. Yeah, just a minute. Yes, uh, there is life after that. Al-Qaeda is not dead. I didn't say Al-Qaeda is dead. Uh, the ideology is still there. I mean, let, let's give you a scenario. Uh, I, I mean, if Libya was to descend into all-out chaos, if I could imagine a scenario where you have, uh, will have in the next two years an Al-Qaeda branch in Libya. Uh, I, we, we don't, uh, and Sejman and I, actually, Sejman has been Making, uh, taking on Bruce Hoffman and the army of terrorism himself, as you know, has come a long way, even though Sageman was the head of the CIA station in Afghanistan, who basically uh, was in charge of the Mujahideen, um, as you all know. Uh, so no, I don't really mean that the ideology is that. I don't mean that Al-Qaeda no longer represents, I mean, a, an irritant. That's not the question. Uh, I think uh, Al-Qaeda ideology uh, is still there, hibernating. And it's attracted to a very tiny, small group of uh, not only Arabs and Muslims, but even in Western societies, as the war on terror. This does not make it a social movement. It makes it it's, it's an ideological uh, narrative uh, that was constructed in the 1990s. And the the, the the basic elements of this particular narrative are very simple. The first narrative is that the West, in particular America, is waging a crusade against Islam and Muslims. Point one. This is very central to the world of you. The second is that the second element is that given the fact that the West and the United States are waging a crusade against the Muslims, Muslims must stand up and defend their identity using all using all tools at their disposal, including terrorism and violence, in order to and they view jihad in the sense, of course, a twisted notion as defensive. That is, they, they are defended, defending. Uh, their identity. Uh, and the third is that they basically condone all kinds of terrorism against civilians. This is, I mean, collateral damage. Even Muslims, uh, and it's so simple, it's so seductive. Uh, it, particularly if you buy this, this particular, once you buy the first idea, the first notion, the first claim that the West is waging a war against Islamic identity, then very easy, then you can talk about the second and third element. And that's why it's so dangerous. In no way. I, I truly say that Al-Qaeda is not dangerous or somehow Al-Qaeda is dead as an ideology. And this, uh, what I'm really saying is that in the broad spectrum of narratives and ideologies, and Al-Qaeda has never been and is not a driver. Uh, it, it, it's, it's in the same way that you might say the ideology of the near enemy, Al-Adu al 
that is the whole idea of Sayyid Qutb and the various uh, militants. I mean, there is no comparison between the near enemy, even though they would like to reclaim Sayyid Qutb. That's what I meant. And we talk about, I mean, he talks about social movement, I talked about social fringe, because it's a movement, we can discuss what the social movement uh, is all about. And thank you, Alan, um, uh, for mentioning uh, Tony Blair. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, 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 and I do mention to a certain extent, but the difference between really Barack Obama, you might disagree with Barack Obama and Tony Blair, Barack Obama goes out of his way truly, regardless we can criticize the, 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 to say this isn't even when uh, this is not about Islam and Muslims, this is not I mean out of the way. If you listen carefully to Tony Blair, he has been relentless in conveying the perception, the idea that somehow Islamist militancy is a threat to the West. Consistently. You have to really I mean if you read his autobiography, if you listen to his interviews, I mean poisonous because deep down, he went on a television spree in the United States in every single interview. He didn't mention Al-Qaeda, but how Islamist militancy, the idea he's trying to convince Americans that yes, it's not just about Al-Qaeda. Somehow, there is an ideological struggle, clash of civilization. In a way, he doesn't say it, uh, because he does not want to come out and say it. But, I mean, if you truly, and as, as, a, as a person who, who, who basically pays clear attention throughout, consistent, I mean, if you talk about neoconservative, uh, even neoconservatives don't go that far about, in fact, they talk about, I mean, they want to change the Muslim world, and somehow, uh, you know, they, they want to liberalize and, and democratize and modernize, uh, but he is consistent from day one, that the reason why I tried to justify why he went to Iraq. We didn't go to Iraq just for Saddam Hussein. We went to Iraq because of a greater ideological premise. We're, we're fighting. We're taking on an insidious enemy that represents an existential threat to the West, truly. And please, and I, you know this, but take a look at his book and, and, and see what, what, you know, how far he goes. In a very subtle, in a very subtle, uh, uh, and, but of course, they, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately for some of us, his, he uses terms that resonate because now, I mean, there are certain terms, part of a, a narrative that some people... Uh, you know, when you say a Sharia, when you say uh, Islamic uh, militancy, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, what is he talking about? Does he group, I mean, Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and Hezbollah as part of the ideological or somehow? What is it? He doesn't say it. He never does say it. But to him, I mean, that's his premise that the reason why he went to Iraq is because there is more to the fight against Al-Qaeda. He would respond to me exactly that. You, I mean, you're wasting your time. We didn't go to Iraq to fight Al-Qaeda. We are waging a historic and historic a struggle against Islamist militancy, uh, a phenomenon that represents a threat to the Muslim world and the West. And, and that's, that's uh, Tony Blair. Um, and yet, I mean, he, he, he's basically trying to uh, improve his image. And as he has not produced anything, unfortunately, uh, in terms of any kind of, I mean, really substantive uh, changes. Uh, well, I mean, we can't blame him for that because uh, even even the Americans have not produced anything on this particular score. You know, I, I really did not understand. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I probably... Uh, I mean, 
mean, what what does the veil have to do with extremism? It's 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 a it's a symbol. It's uh, I mean, if you ban it, you turn it into a symbol of identity. In fact, you are. Uh, I think, in this particular sense, I mean, I've done I've criticized America a great deal. I think there's something to say about really the American stress on individualism, on, on personal freedom, individual freedom, as opposed to the French obsession. Is, <laughs> and it's, it's now reaching the, 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 the British shores, unfortunately, the whole idea that somehow we should fear uh, a, a symbol that um, women feel very proud of. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't think that, you know, there is no relationship between Islamic symbols and uh, uh, that's a different kind of debate. It's all about what kind of society you want, whether you want to have a homogeneous society or you want to a monolith, you want to shape uh, how your people, I mean, in terms of a collective identity as opposed to individual identities. Thank you. Right, I think we're out of time. Um, before we thank um, Fawaz Jurgis, I would like to remind everyone that there are books being sold outside, Fawaz Jurgis's book, and he's also signing them, and there's also going to be a reception. Um, so thank you very much, thank Professor Jurgis.